Hey friends, Kim Honeycutt here. So our keynote speaker for the month of August was Renee Swoops. And you might be thinking, Renee Swoop, Renee Swoop, that sounds familiar. Well, it should. She is one of the co-founders for Proverbs 31. She's also the best-selling author of her book, Confident Heart. And she's writing another book. She's about to reach deadline for her next book that's coming out. And so, so glad that she's an author, she's a speaker, she's a lover of Jesus, she's an amazing mom, she's a great wife, but she's also a friend of mine, and she is, for all of us, her sister in Christ. So please enjoy what you're about to experience. So I want to tell you the story of a little girl, and the reason I want to tell you her story is because I want you to think about yours. Although Dominique said that she loves that I have a confident heart, It is not something that I was born with. Um, The confidence that I have, when I do have it, (laughs) and it's not always, um, comes from a deep brokenness, from being paralyzed by insecurity and self-doubt and fear and worry. And God has through my brokenness and through his call on my life, taught me what it looks like to not seek self-confidence, but soul confidence. I call it Godfidence, because that's really what we need. But I wanna tell you this story about this little girl in hopes that you'll think about the little girl or little boy that you once were, and maybe how you got to this place that you're at in life. So this is her. She was born in 1967. She came into the world looking for a party. (laughs) She loved to have fun. And then something happened. As you can see the difference in the face of the the little one at six months and the three-year-old here Something happened that caused that little girl who was so full of anticipation to feel afraid, to be terrified when my mom would drop me off at daycare or even leave me when I started kindergarten. I'll never forget her practically having to drag me down the hallway because I was terrified that she would leave. My mom said that when these little preschool pictures came home, she knew that she needed to remove me from that daycare center. I don't know why I was afraid, probably it could be blocked out. I just do remember being very, very afraid. And then there was middle school. What you cannot really tell is that my cute blonde hair turned red. And although I pay now to have red highlights, back then it wasn't so cool. (laughs) You know when the kids on the bus call you redhead and freckle face or tell you that you're Nose looks like you were hit by a truck, and it never recovered. You'll also notice that you can't really see my teeth and my sweet, pitiful little smile, and it's because they were so crooked. I could basically stick my tongue out even when my mouth was closed. You see, I sucked my thumb for security and to calm my anxiety until I was about 10 years old. And the only reason I gave up that addiction is because they put this wire thing in my mouth called a rake. 
I'm pretty sure that DSS wouldn't allow that now, but it's a metal piece behind your teeth that literally has four prongs on it that will make your tongue bleed and swell if you suck your thumb or your tongue. And then I grew up. And all of my freckles and my red hair and my Dorothy Hamill bowl cut and my little house on the prairie dress that I absolutely hated that we probably got from Goodwill was nothing that a perm and braces couldn't fix. And Olin Mills helped a lot too. <laughs> As you can see, my hair was so big, this was in the 80s. You guys who have been in the 80s, you remember the big hair. And it was so big it didn't even fit like into this picture. <laughs> so, and I remember when I got that picture, and I loved how they could touch up and just make all the flaws go away. I remember thinking, I look so happy. I look so put together. And yet on the inside, I was dying a slow, emotional death, struggling with severe clinical depression, wanting so much to escape the emptiness and the pain the anxiety and the sadness. I had done so much to numb it. I was so busy. As I look back on my high school days, I'm like, why in the world did my mom let me do all those things? I literally felt like I was gonna have a nervous breakdown. But I was longing for people's approval. The only time I could really get my parents' attention was if I accomplished something. But that was only as good as the last accomplishment. And then I needed to do something else for them to notice me, for them to have time. I don't think they meant to neglect me. I don't think they meant for that to come across. It wasn't like, you know, some parents, and some of you maybe grew up in a situation where it's blatantly clear you need to earn their attention. And that you're only good when you're accomplishing things or accumulating possessions or getting accolades from people. And my parents loved when I could do that because it made them feel good and possibly look good. But it was killing me. It was killing me. And so I had tried to numb my way with busyness and accomplishments and academics and, and possessions and people's approval. And then I went on to college, far away from home. I wanted to get away from the people who knew me so I could try to figure out who I was on my own, but that was harder than I ever imagined it would be. The depression didn't stay back in Shelby, North Carolina. It followed me to Raleigh. And the darkness got worse. And now I was away from home and so I could drink more, I could sleep with my boyfriend as often as I wanted because he had his own apartment. We didn't have to sneak through the lies, pretend we were in other places with other people. And I thought that intimacy would satisfy me, that maybe it would fill the empty places. Maybe, maybe he, this would be a way that we would be so connected that he would marry me. And then I would never be alone. You see, I had this fear, and maybe you do too, that if people found out who I really was, 
basically how empty and insecure and right on the edge of falling apart, if they found out who I really was, what I really felt like, they would leave me. I had worked so hard to convince people that I had worth, that I was worthy of their acceptance and their approval. But after six years of trying to numb my way out of the pain and trying to drink my way out of the pain and trying to sleep my way out of the pain, I hit rock bottom. I remember driving home drunk from a party and seeing a telephone pole and thinking, I could end it all. They'd, they'd think it was an accident. That telephone pole looked like such a good solution. Have you ever been there? Maybe it's the prescription drugs. Maybe it's just a little bit too much to drink. And as I contemplated taking my life, I had a flashback to when I was 16 and I was in a really horrible car accident and I should have died. I flipped my car, it landed in a field. I literally flipped my car. It landed in a field, the paramedics searched for my body, but they couldn't find me. They found me at the hospital and they told my mom, who then came in and told me, it's a miracle you're alive. I wasn't wearing a seatbelt. My whole windshield was gone. It landed on the driver's side, but somehow, miraculously, I had busted open the door, climbed out the top of the car, and run to the highway to flag down someone who would take me back to my boyfriend's house so I could get a ride to the hospital. I only had a few bruises and scratches. And as my mom looked into my eyes in the hospital, she said, it's a miracle you're alive. God must have a purpose for your life. What's crazy is that my mom didn't have a relationship with God. She was on her own search for identity and purpose, something to fill her own emptiness. She was walking through her second divorce after finding out that her husband had been having an affair for four years. She was reading books like The Power of the Myth and other resources, seeking direction. But somehow, she spoke words that I want to speak over you tonight. It's a miracle that you're alive. You are a miracle. You are fashioned by God. He wove you together in your mother's womb. And whether she wanted you or not, he did. And every day of your life is already written in a book where he has collected the number of your days and the stories of your life and all the crap. <laughs> and all the crying, and all the hard stuff, and all the abuse, and all the things that you didn't deserve, or maybe you did, maybe the consequences of your own choices, but he does not condemn you. 
Instead, he calls you out of those dark places and those regrets and those mistakes into the light. And he says, will you hand me the pen and will you let me write your story? Will you let me fill that emptiness and bind up those broken places in your heart and in your soul and in your mind? So instead of looking for a way out of the darkness, I began to look for the God who had saved my life. And I I gave him an ultimatum. Basically, God, if you're real, like, you need to make yourself known to me because I can't, I cannot keep doing this anymore. That week, I noticed a flyer on campus that I'd never seen anything like it before, just inviting me or inviting others, but it felt like an invitation to me, to an event at a church nearby with other college students, and I went alone. And I listened, and I heard people talk about a relationship with God, about his unconditional love, about grace. I didn't know where they were coming from. I'd never heard anything like it. Even though I had been to church off and on throughout my life, something had kept me from hearing what my soul so desperately longed for. And that was that I was loved, that I didn't have to be perfect because his love was. I was accepted, I was approved, that I was worthy of his love and worth his very life that he gave on the cross. And so that day in January of 1989, I surrendered and I gave my life to him. I didn't know what in the world I was doing. I had no idea that I actually was headed towards like what the Bible or others call hell. I was living in hell. And over time, I started to get to know God through a personal relationship, just talking to him, opening up my Bible. I'll never forget the first time I turned to um, Isaiah 41, I believe it is, where it says, you are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. Maybe you, like me, have gone through life looking for love, and I heard someone mention it earlier as I was listening to the messages, looking for life in all the wrong places, looking for love in all the wrong faces, looking for stuff that would fill your empty places. Have you ever asked, why was it never enough? Have you ever asked that? Have you ever been just driving to the, down the road or, or in your kitchen or in the bathroom in the shower? That's where my most profound questions and, and thoughts come and just thought, well, why? why was it never enough? Or why is it not enough? Like I'm doing everything. God, do you see how much I'm doing? All these things that you thought would fill you up, all the approval that you thought would finally complete you, why is it not enough? I brought uh, rummage through my daughter's dollhouses without her looking this afternoon, and I got some stuff for us. You see, I feel like we walk around with this empty jar, this empty vase, hoping that someone or something will fill us. From the time we're little, whether it's our grandparents, I'm just randomly picking people, or a teacher, maybe a big sister, maybe it's a spouse, We've got to have something for the guys, too, okay, here. You know, 
you know, it's a, a spouse. Maybe if I was only married, then, then I'd be filled. Maybe it's a boss or a pastor or Dominique. I mean, this looks like Dominique. Maybe it's Dominique. <laughs> she needs some braids, though. Or maybe if we could just have kids. Who cares if we don't have, you know, a spouse? Like, we just want kids, because then somebody will love us. Like, we think they're like puppies. Like, they're just going to running and be so happy to see us. But that's not quite how it works out. But, you know, we just think if we could have kids or more kids when the first one's a, you know, hard one, we'll just have more and more or just go work in the nursery room or something. Or maybe if I could just accomplish something, you know, get a blue ribbon award, a, a name on my door, an office with a window. Or maybe I could go to the mall or Best Buy. Or, Kim, where do you get your cars? Jaguar, you know, uh, Porsche, Porsche. You know, or get a fancy, fast car. I got more people in here because they're, they're the ones we seek the approval of. But, but we think they'll approve of us maybe if we had more furniture, new furniture, new, not just more, new furniture, a bigger house in a different neighborhood, or a new widescreen TV. Thank you, Barbie. The refrigerator's not going to fit, so let's go with some food. You know, those of us who fill our empty places with the crunchy food, or some, let's pretend like it's ice cream. Pizza. I mean, I don't think anybody turns to corn to solve their problems, but. <laughs> or maybe if we just had more money, a bigger bank account, or a larger credit limit, or some shoes. <laughs> and I'm talking to the men and the women, because I know we love us some shoes, and people notice us, right? And we think we're cool, and it feels good, doesn't it? Our closets are full, our calendars are full, our lives are so full, and yet there are so many empty places because this stuff can't fill us up. It can't fill us up. Real quickly, I want to tell you about a woman who had a lot of empty places. Her name is the Samaritan woman, but I like to call her Sam. I'd love for you to read her story in the book of John, chapter 4. Sam um, went to the well on this day at noon. She probably did a lot of the times. But it was weird that she was there because it was the hottest part of the day. And the women normally came in the cool hours or in the late hours, you know, because they carry these huge, like, cement-like jars, clay jars, to fill with water to use for bathing, for dishwashing, for whatever, for cleaning those kids who won't listen. But she was there alone. And I have to believe it's because she was avoiding not the approval, but the rejection of the women in her town. They used to come together at the well, and they would talk about recipes, about their husbands, about their kids, about life. Maybe they even talked about God. But over time, they started to talk about her. You see, Sam had been married multiple times. And in that day, especially, even today, we feel like it's a scarlet letter, but in that day, it was the most excruciating rejection. A woman couldn't leave her husband, but he could definitely leave her. 
and they had. And so she met Jesus at the well. And I just want to read to you a couple of different verses. Because as he sits down, he asks her for a cup of water. It wasn't much, but it was all she had to offer. She was shocked that he was talking to him because he was a man and he was also Jewish. She could tell by the way he was dressed and Jews didn't talk with Samaritans. They considered them to be the scum of the earth. Talk about rejection. But not Jesus. Not only did he accept her, he pursued her. But she didn't yet quite know who he was. He said to her when she said, how can I give you a drink of water? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Tonight as we talk about approval addiction, and we think, okay, if I'm not supposed to be addicted to people's approval, how do I begin to replace that? Like, like any other addiction, it feels so impossible, right? How will I live if I'm not dependent on this or them? And Jesus says to us, if you only knew, if you only knew what I could give you, you would be willing to give me that. Because I'm the only one that can fill you and fulfill you. They go on talking, and he addresses the hardest ache and empty place in her life. He says to her, go and get your husband. And I'm sure she's like, oh, and how in the heck did he know? <laughs> like, and she's like, I don't have a husband. He's like, I know. But he doesn't say it with a condemning tone. He's like, I know. In fact, you've had five husbands, and the man you're now living with is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. No condemnation, just truth. Just honesty. And that's all he's asking for, uh, from us. A willingness to say, this is what I'm looking to for approval. This is what I'm looking to to fill me up. Will you show me what I really need? Will you help me, God, to take these gifts, these good things, and put them back where they belong? In a gift box, the people are the hardest to get out. Always the hardest. Dominique's like up all sideways, like, I ain't getting out of here. And it's not that we have to get rid of them. We just have to put them where they belong. You see, they've ended up in a place of preeminence in our lives. But they're gifts from the giver who we were created to worship. Could you pull up that, that word? Uh, of worship. You see, God put a, well, I'm gonna go back one. God put a longing in our hearts for unfailing love because he knew that it would lead us back to him. He put that longing in your heart for approval. So eventually you'd come to end of yourself and come to him and he'd say, here it is, it's a gift. He put the longing in our hearts so it would lead us back to him, you see, only God's unfailing love and approval will fill us and fulfill us. It is the deepest thirst of our souls. It is nothing to be ashamed of. It is nothing to run from, but it is something that should cause us to run to him. Now, could we go to that slide with worship? 
I'm going to skip some slides for time's sake. I hope it's there. It might be sooner. Well, I, I'm not even going to wait. He'll find it. Um, the word worship comes from two words. And when I, I'm talking about this really quick because we've put these things in a place where we're finding our worth and they're in a place of preeminence. As Jesus continued to talk with her, and they talked about the husband thing, she changed the subject and said, where should I go to church? And he's like, it doesn't even matter where you go to worship. Because God is looking for people who don't worship him necessarily in Jerusalem or in other places, but who worship him in spirit and in truth. That word worship comes from originally two words, worship. You see, we're looking to these things, and as hard as it is to admit They've begun to capture our worship. And we're looking to them to find our worth-ship. And we are giving them so much power. And we need to take back our power. Because he is the one and only that belongs in a place of preeminence who should have the power to determine our worth. And we should take our empty heart to him, like Sam eventually did that day, and say, Lord, fill me, fulfill me. And as you do, he wants to speak truth into your heart. You are loved just as you are. You are enough. You don't have to be or do or earn anything more. You are enough. You are approved of because you're mine. You have been woven into my image. Are you tarnished? Yes. Are you broken? Yes. Do you have things in, in your life that, that are hurting you, that make him sad, that he calls sin? Yes. But he still wants to fill you and fulfill you. And when you let him, moment by moment, day by day, Pain by pain, rejection by rejection. He'll fill those empty places. Look, you see, water is the only thing that will fill and fulfill. And if I could keep pouring, what would happen? It rhymes with fill. It would spill. Because that's what he wants to become in us, a spring of living water welling up. Oops, I'll put it up here to give us life. God's approval is the only thing that will satisfy us. Until his love is enough, nothing else will be. Sam said to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming and he'll explain everything. And he said to her, I am he. Basically, girlfriend, I just did. You are empty, and you are looking to these relationships and your husband to fill you up, but nothing will. Nothing will. And the girl who was running from her neighbors and the gossip in her town ran back to those very people and said, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. And they came to find him. She's one of the reasons, her story is one of the reasons that I'm here tonight. I wanted to run from my story for so long. There's so much shame attached to mental illness. 
to anxiety and depression. And so I wanted to wait and share my story when it was like a better story, you know, one that, you know, you would look up to. Actually, it would be one that would completely depress you because it would just sound like my life was perfect, and it wasn't. Your story is worth telling, and I'm so proud of you guys. It takes so much courage, but so is yours and yours and yours and yours and yours. Just like Sam, your story will set other captives free. But let him fill you first. Let him begin to give you the hope and approval you've been looking for in others, and then begin to tell and invite them to come and meet a man who knows everything you ever did, <laughs> and he wants you.